0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: Honestly, you know, I think that there are a lot of Republicans who are disgusted with the fringe right. Because that's what he is. He's the fringe right. He's the loudest one speaking in the room, and unfortunately, people think, or he's making himself, or others are making him seem like the middle of a bell curve.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Josh Remillard, an Army vet running for Congress as a Democrat in North Carolina's 13th congressional district. His campaign focuses on education, healthcare, and sustainability, and defeating Madison Cawthorn. Josh, welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: Hey, thank you guys so much for having me on here.
0: The subheader of your campaign website when I searched for it on Google says, Josh Remillard for Congress No more insurrections. Uh, Not every day that that is the animating principle of a campaign for Congress, but you're facing some unusual circumstances. Talk to us about your motivation and the role the opponent plays in your campaign.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I mean, just a a little bit about myself. You know, I I learned earlier that life is a fight. Uh, I mean, I, I I guess that's sort of how the world looks when you have a tough childhood. And I I was raised inside the foster care system. Um, I mean, I lived all over the place in North Carolina, um, and it wasn't until my grandparents were able to adopt me that things settled down a little bit. Um, you know, my my grandfather worked for the State Department, and, and he and my grandmother were looking forward to you know traveling around the world and living out their golden years. But then they realized I needed them. And look, even when I got older, my my um, the jobs I even held were fights. I mean, I. I worked on a tugboat as a deckhand. I worked as a piercer in a tattoo shop, and and then as a bouncer. And then, you know, when I when I was in my mid twenties, that's when I joined the army. Two thousand six, I was sort of moping around town, looking at the news, seeing the death toll rise, and uh, I, you know, I just I just hated myself. I, I was like, what am I doing? I'm I'm over here trying to use a coupon to go get like a Hardee's burger and stuff. I felt like I was just sort of cheating the system. So I mean, you know, I drove down to the uh, drove down to the recruiter and I said, look, man, I, I want you to sign me up. I want you to put me in the infantry and I want you to, if you're able to, put me in the fastest deploying unit to, uh, overseas. I, I need to be in that fight. Um, when I left the army after my tours were up, you know, I I guess in a sense, the army never really left me. Uh, as an infantryman, your mindset is always based on, you, you have a mission and your mission is to go after the enemy. And so when you get out of the army, it's not really a whole lot, it, it's, it's difficult for you to transition out. But then I I found an an organization, Team Rubicon. It's a veteran organization. They train veterans up on on how to respond to natural disasters. And then they deploy us all over the country. Uh, They helped me get my wildland firefighter certification, and they helped me get my damage assessment certification. and sent me down to Florida after Hurricane Michael. Um, I married a wonderful woman, uh, Rhiannon. And I thought for the first time, after we met our, our home here in Canton in North Carolina, about what a, a peaceful, calm, battle-free life might be like, even though we have two toddlers, Guinevere and Eowyn. <laughs> it's, it's never calm nor peaceful at the house. But then I felt like I was summoned again to a different kind of fight. And this time it was to an all-too-American face. And that's Madison Coughlin. You know, January 6th, he stood up at the Ellipse and you know he was encouraging that mob to go and, and overtake our nation's capital. As a matter of fact, no, that day, I remember, I guess you could say the switch in my head flipped and, and I just remember being really angry and screaming at the TV and my wife comes home and she's like, what are you yelling at? I'm like, look, look what's happening to our capital right now. You know, like this is supposed to happen in other countries, not, not our country. Um, And it was sort of at that moment that I decided, you know, you know, I lost battle buddies overseas. I lost a a really, really close friend of mine uh, due to PTSD back home. And I felt like everything that Cawthorn was doing um, was spitting in the face of all that sacrifice, that 200 years of military service, people have fought and died for this country just so someone like Cawthorn can come over and encourage mobs to overthrow our our nation's capital, our constitution, our symbol of freedom. Uh, And I I just said, I can't live with myself if I don't do this. So I, I stepped into the ring.
0: That is Team Rubicon's motto, as I'm sure you're aware, step into the arena. <laughs> and I know some of our listeners are probably jumping up and down right now, and I can't believe you and I didn't make this connection earlier, but I was the uh, the president of Team Rubicon Global and got my red card. Uh, that's my Wildland Firefighter card oh, through, man. through TR as well. So we got a few things in common, Josh. <laughs>
1: that's, that's outstanding.
0: I feel I can get away with this as a fellow vet, and I'm just going to say what I am sure a lot of folks listening to this are thinking, hearing your background. You were a deckhand on a tugboat, a bouncer, a, et cetera, et cetera, Army infantry. You should be a Republican, right?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I get that question asked a lot. Um, I hear people say, hey, thank you for your service, but why a Democrat? And, you know, honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't even political – most of my life. You know, I, I remember I came back for R&R one time from a deployment and, and my, uh, my aunt asked me, you know, like, what president are you gonna vote for? And I said, Aunt Jeannie, I don't, I don't even care. And she's like, why? And I said, well, you know, if I vote for president A and president B gets elected, guess what? That's my commander in chief. That was a really, really faulty argument, I guess you could say, a really weak argument. But when I got out of the army, I, I started using my post 9/11 GI Bill. I wanted to do something more with my life. So I worked on getting my degree. I got my bachelor's degree in political science and philosophy. And uh, I think that during that time, while I was working on my degree, I started making connections with, with my service, being in the army and then society, if you will. In the army, it's important that everyone has a good education, at least as far as like your specialty is concerned. So that way you can be, we can be the greatest fighting force in the world. Then you have the fact that everyone gets equal pay. Whatever your rank is, that's what your pay is. You know then there's healthcare everyone has good healthcare because I mean I would I would hate for the guy in the foxhole next to me to have to be sick while I'm trying to while I'm trying to lay down cover fire. You know, and so I started thinking like if it works in the military, why can't it work in society? And I think that I just at that point I was like, you know, I guess fundamentally I'm a Democrat. <laughs> so but you know bottom line is, you know, when I was overseas and we were we were engaged in combat, it didn't matter the people to my left to my right, it didn't matter if you were progressive, if you were conservative, if you were Republican. It didn't matter. What matters is you're getting shot at. You need to get home. You need to get back to base. So solve the problem and Charlie Mike or continue mission, you know?
0: Yeah. But does that messaging break through in a political climate that is so polarized where tribal identity is so determinative of how people vote more than policy orientation? Because you know you're you're right. Um, you're going to get in trouble just because I'm saying this, but the military is a pretty good example of certain socialist approaches to things working, right? <laughs> um like uniform pay, merit- based pay um, based on your rank, medical coverage for all, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, if you can label that with anything other than the term democratic policy, it's pretty attractive. But in the North Carolina 11th – I'm sorry, 13th. You you might have to explain the redistricting fiasco to us. But in the 13th, what's it like wearing the label Democrat?
1: You know, I think that probably on its face, you know, initially people are like, okay, well, you're not going to win because you're a Democrat. But the bottom line is I think that my background is why I can win here. You know, I'm a combat veteran. I serve this nation like a lot of men and women – I've never backed down from a fight. And this specific one, I'm not going to back down from. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that if people are going to elect a Democrat, it's got to be someone like them who's going to fight for them um, and who's not going to put special interests ahead of them. Uh, and, you know, like I said, the, you know, the reason I'm running against Madison Cawthorn is the reason I can beat him. You know, and I'm not running because I want to be in Congress, but because I serve this country. You know, Madison Cawthorn betrayed that trust and, and, and I want our country back.
0: But didn't he go to the uh, the Naval Academy?
1: <laughs> no, he didn't.
0: <laughs> I bring that up because it gets to a larger point about the enormous – cachet isn't the right word – but the authority that veterans bring to conversations like this. So much that a congressional candidate who was rejected from Annapolis would lie about it just to be able to wear that label of, of a veteran or a wannabe veteran – it's really powerful in my part of the country and your part of the country. But how do you wear that responsibility as a veteran, speaking
1: as someone who didn't just swear an oath but risked your life for it? It makes me mad. It makes it does make me mad because again, I mean, there are too many people that raised their they raised their right hand, oath of enlistment, serve this country, didn't come back home. You know, unless it was in a a, a coffin. And they did it because they wanted to serve something larger than themselves. I wanted to serve something larger than myself. I felt like I was cheating the system because I wasn't serving. So to see someone like Madison Cawthorn commit to uh, false patriotism, it's disgusting. It's a disgusting lie because that means, you know, someone who's going to raise their right hand is willing to, is ultimately willing to pay the ultimate price for this country. Um, And you're right. I think that, you know, he realized that, Um, You know, being a veteran, someone who served, it carries weight. It carries a lot of weight, especially in this district, especially in the district that he was elected in. And that was, in my mind, probably how he was, how he figured that his calculation, how he would get elected. Um, Like I said before, like, I I want people to know, Republican or not, like, it doesn't matter to me whether you're a Republican, Democrat, conservative, progressive, it doesn't matter. If you live in the district, you deserve someone who's actually going to put policy at the forefront, who's going to work to make your lives better because every single person deserves that. And that's exactly what, what I want to do. We
0: get a lot of um, candidates for Congress asking to, to come on. Um, but we're talking to you because I think your race represents something bigger. Because I, I see Madison Cawthorne as really a symptom. I mean, he's he's uniquely awful in a lot of ways, but he's also a symbol of a real threat to our democracy. And from our earlier conversation before we hit the record button, it sounds like that animates you as well. The idea of accountability and, well, I said it at the top, no more insurrections what do you think is at stake and it's not just one congressional seat
1: you're right i uh on january 6th you know i was sort of moping around the house you know doing some odds and ends chores and and i you know i saw what was happening on the news and i just remember the switch flipping in my head and screaming at the tv and and my wife comes home and she's like what are you yelling at and i was like look look what's happening right now like you expect this in other countries not in America, not, not in a place that, you know, service members have fought and died for for the past 200 plus years to protect our constitution, our way of life, our friends and our family. And yet here you have a person just so that he can be famous over here encouraging an angry mob to overthrow our nation's capital. You know, and I couldn't live with myself if I didn't get involved in, in this race because that's not right. I lost a really, really close friend of mine. Uh, due to PTSD. I lost battle buddies overseas. And it hurts, that's a painful memory to think that that he gave the ultimate sacrifice for this country and it scarred him for the rest of his life to the point where he ended up having to take it. And to see someone like Madison Cawthorn just parade around, it's disgusting to me. Like I said, I had to step in the ring. I, I couldn't let this stand.
0: My name is Cindy Burnett and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts From a Page.
1: head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
0: What do you make of the lack of remorse among those instigators, folks who Moved their their most extreme supporters to to act the way they did on January sixth, but from a safe distance. They weren't at, they weren't on the front lines of that. Uh, they were you know they were rear echelon instigators, and since then have doubled down. How do you think about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I uh, two words. You know, uh, devious and and cowardice. Um, to sit in the comforts of your hotel room, like I imagine Madison Cawthorn did, you know, ordering up some room service, arming yourself with only your cell phone, and then, you know, turning your followers into insurrectionists. That is just disgusting. And and the idea that, you know, Madison Cawthorn specifically would take aim at the cops and the and the police officers, the men and women in blue, who most of were Republican uh defending our constitution would take aim at them and defame them and denigrate them after all the sacrifices that they took i mean broken bones you know traumatic brain injury the four that ended up taking their lives i mean come on man like i just I, <laughs> the more i think about what he what he is what he has done it just angers me
0: but now you're a candidate and you've got to convince 100 plus 1000 people in the north carolina 13th to vote for you do they care? I often have to challenge myself about whether I'm I'm in a bubble. I mean, we've probably done, I can ask Declan, our producer, but we've probably done half a dozen or more episodes on, on January 6th. I care about this stuff, but I'm not convinced that the average voter does or you tell me, the median voter in the North Carolina 13th.
1: Yeah, so – I'll back up a little bit more and talk about the 13th. So initially, Cawthorn was elected for the NC 11th Congressional District, which is Western North Carolina, everything from Asheville all the way to the very tip of North Carolina. He was elected there. And then after the lines had been redrawn, the district became more competitive for a Democrat to win. It went from like, I think it was an R plus 12 to an R plus seven. And it was shortly after that, that he, he had announced that he was going to run in the newly drawn NC 13 district, which is the home district of uh, Republican, NC Republican uh, House Speaker, Tim Moore. Now there's there's people out there saying that the district was essentially drawn for Tim Moore to run for Congress. And then Madison Cawthorn runs in that district because it's an R plus 12, R plus 13, I think. And his announcement video was received as very condescending. Now he didn't, he didn't specifically say this, but the tone and the message that came across was, you're too stupid and you need me to fight for you. To which, you know, Tom Tillis' wife even came out and was like, we don't need you. Uh, to which uh, Tim Moore has even come out recently and had an interview that says he's effectively disgusted with Madison Kaufman. And slews and slews of prominent Republicans have come out. And even conservative radio has come out and criticized the move. Like, essentially, who are you to think that we need you? So he is fractured. He is dividing the Republican Party in North Carolina, at least within the NC-13 district. Um, There's been several prominent Republicans that are are like, look, I'd even vote for a Democrat just so I don't have to deal with Madison Cawthorn. And so I think that this is where someone like myself fits in. You know, I think that, you know, people would vote for someone like me as long as they see me as someone who will fight for their interests. Someone who has served this country. You know, this, this isn't a political game for me. This is this is saving our democracy. This is saving our country. What will you do if you lose? I mean, if I lose, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep fighting the good fight. I'll, I'll keep you know going around, uh, being a part of the community, uh, talking to people, and trying to encourage them to be vocal. You know, I mean, and and look, I mean, if if he does end up winning, it's the right thing to do. Is to I guess you could say congratulate him if he wins, but. We're going to try like hell to make sure that we win.
0: That's the right answer. And it's, it's a pretty good test for me when you ask um, folks who who make a good stump speech about fighting for their country, but their answer to what do you do if you lose is, oh, I'll, I'll go back to investment banking or whatever. It, I'll, I'll go back to real estate. Um, doesn't quite meet the urgency of the moment. Um, I know you got a tough race. And – A betting man would say the odds are against you, but if you lose, the fight's not over, and I'm glad your heart's still in the fight. What is your your long-term prognosis for the democratic crisis we're facing? Uh, I'm asking you because you're on the front lines of it. Do do you think that the Madison Cawthorns of of the world are supernovas that shine bright and are going to flare out? Or is something really sinister happening on the right and taking over the Republican Party writ large?
1: This is definitely something – I mean, look, he is, Madison Cawthorn is a particular kind of evil, but he's not dumb. He knew that the election wasn't stolen. He knew that it had been certified. He knew that it was secure. There's an undertone here. There are people – like you said, like there is a sinister move here to – to keep people like him in power. I mean, because he's gone around, he he has gone around not only the country, but the state of North Carolina trying to encourage other radicals like himself to go stand up and run for office just like him. So he's they're trying to bolster themselves. But the thing about it is, honestly, you know, I think that there are a lot of Republicans who are disgusted with the fringe right, because that's what he is. He's the fringe right. He's the loudest one speaking in the room. And unfortunately, people think, or he's making himself or he, others are making him seem like the middle of a bell curve. But, you know, going back to what I was just saying, like the, you know, the, I think there are a lot of Republicans out there that are like, this is not the Republican party that I grew up in, that I grew up loving and respecting. And that's why I believe that there's a division in, in the, in the, in the statewide GOP, because there's people like, this is not the Republican party. You are not the Republican party. And I guess maybe that there is probably some gravitas behind it because, you know I think that some people are probably upset with the maybe the way the Democrats speak. I, I don't know. Um, you know, my, my big thing is is I want I want to talk about issues that are centered, you know, with a microscope, that are centered around my district. The day-to-day issues that people are dealing with. And perhaps people aren't aren't hearing that. They're not hearing that from the Democratic Party. Uh, they're hearing about the big bills, the you know, the infrastructure bill, and and while that's that's great and all, the issue is. People aren't hearing how they're going to be affected at the dinner table. They're not hearing how they're going to be affected in their neighborhoods. And I think that if we start talking to people where they are, we can probably squash this this movement from Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the, and the rest.
0: Well, I want to give you a chance to do that because we have spent perhaps an inordinate amount of time talking about your opponent and what he represents. And certainly part of your campaign is defeating that, but... You've got a positive message, too.
1: What are your hopes for the North Carolina 13th? For me personally, I want to I want to help take care of veterans. I want to take care of my brothers and sisters in arms who fought for this country. I want to help update the hospitals, make them more, you know, modernize them up to at least the, the age of private sector hospitals. You know, so that's a big issue for me. I want to help improve the economy around the district. You know, I want to ensure as best that I can to ensure that money goes where it needs to um, within the district for infrastructure. And, you know, I think as far as like healthcare goes, I mean, this is a big issue. This is, this is a big issue. I mean, and it's had it's had a lot of arguments on both sides of it. But I think what's important is that realizing what your job in Congress is to do when it comes to healthcare. You know, it's not the past Medicaid expansion. That's a statewide issue. And I hear a lot of people talking about that. It's a statewide issue. But for me, it would be putting, putting pressure on, on pharmaceutical companies, trying to negotiate prices for pharmaceutical, uh, for pharmaceuticals, taking an approach, looking at the broad spectrum of this thing, and, and trying to take an approach which effectively solves the problem. That, to me, is the most important thing.
0: Do you think you'll get a debate uh, to highlight those issues?
1: I would love a debate. I, I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean— when Madison Cawthorn came out and, and tried to challenge or make fun of uh, Rachel Maddow, you know, we were we were right there, you know, calling out to every news station that we could and be like, look, hey, look, we, we want to debate. I mean, you think you're tough? Fine. Um, then let's go. Let's do it. Because I think that people need to hear you in a debate. They need to hear you talk because he has a tendency to either not talk or talk only in scripted uh, events. And people need to see him for what he really is.
0: Last question. You think you're going to find time for uh, another Team Rubicon deployment during the campaign?
1: <laughs> I've been trying to. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, so back in August, we had some flooding with the tropical depression. Fred came through where my house is, and there's a, a river that runs, it's about 100 feet from my house, uh, the Pigeon River, and uh, it flooded really bad. Uh, and a lot of places around here, uh, like, I mean, we saw trailers flying down the river. We saw houses and cars and, and stuff like that flying down the river. And I reached out to team Rubicon uh, for North Carolina and, and I was like, look, I mean, if it's possible, you know, if we're able to do it, we can set up in, in my backyard as a sort of a headquarters. Um, but I went around just as I could, just to my neighbors and I helped out my neighbors as much as I could. I, you know, I helped try to pull people's cars out of the, out of the muck, you know, um, I, I helped cut down some trees that were threatening my, one of my neighbor's houses. I've sort of given myself over to Team Rubicon because I love the mission that they're engaged in. I absolutely love it. It continues the mission that we're all sort of institutionalized into, you know, like it's, it. service members have a mission to protect our country and to protect our friends and our family. And what better way to do that than, than on your personal time, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Uh, Well, I hope I see you out there. Um, I'm going to try to to get one in this year as well. That's uh, part of my New Year's resolution. Josh, it's been awesome having you on Burn the Boats.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Josh for joining me. To learn more about his time in Iraq, listen to his interview on Warriors in Their Own Words, releasing February 17th. For more information about his campaign, visit joshremillard.com. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at at Josh NC, and you can find the rest of his socials in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world.